You're listening to Were You Still Talking? Hey, well, welcome to another episode of Were You Still Talking? This is Joel Albrecht in In the Studio, or not in the studio, on the Zoomio today. I have uh, Joseph Joe Lavalle. So it's a Joe and a Joel. His career path to, um, to becoming an author was very unusual, to say the least. He liked to describe his life as outrageous good fortune. He's been a reporter photographer for Iowa newspapers for seven years, served for more than 30 years as an executive in Iowa hospitals and its largest statewide healthcare network. He's a musician. He plays drums, just like I used to. He's performed in rock bands, country trios, and as a solo artist. He is a writer. After a life of writing many different types of fiction and nonfiction, he published his first novel in 2019, and he now has written five novels, and he's working on a sixth, very prolific, lifelong Iowan. He's a proud alumni of Iowa Central Community College in Fort Dodge, Drake University in Des Moines, and the University of Iowa in Iowa City. Joe, how are you doing? Good to see you. Great to meet you. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Joel. I'm honored and uh, excited to be with you. So I have no idea where to start. You have a, a lot, <laughs> kind of a lot, <laughs> a lot going on. But um, I'll just start with the the part that I'm always impressed with. You started writing fairly recently, and you've already written five novels. How? What? Yeah. What kind of? <laughs> what led to that? How did you? How did you get to do that? Well, I tell you, it it comes uh, first of all, of course, from my love of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's I, I. My bachelor's degree was in journalism, and as you said, I worked as a daily newspaper reporter, and I covered crime in the courts as my primary beat for seven years. So I covered eight homicides. Um, two of them were double murders. I sat through six murder trials and a, and a bunch of other trials. And so a long, long time ago, um, way back when I was a young single guy, I was sitting in a murder trial and um, it was pretty obvious the guy on trial was guilty. They had a whole table filled with evidence in the courtroom. And I just kind of started daydreaming and thought, you know, what if he wasn't guilty? How might all this evidence have been assembled against him? What might be going on behind the scenes that would cause someone to um, frame, if you will, this uh, young man for murder? And I just thought to myself, oh, that's a cool idea for a novel. I should write that someday. Well, then I got married and I uh, got a better job and I bought my first Apple IIe computer to give you an idea how old I am. <laughs> okay. And and I actually wrote the first six chapters of my first novel way back in the mid to late 1980s. And then, and, and in the course of doing that, I created this uh, protagonist, a primary character named Tony Harrington. And they say, write what you know. So um, he was created as a young, single newspaper reporter uh, covering a murder trial. And he decides the guy on trial is innocent, and he goes looking for the for the real killers and and uncovers a very sinister plot going on behind the scenes. But in any case, 
He was created in the fictional town of Orney, Iowa, and his boss and his best friend, and all these things were created back in the 1980s. And then the, the book mostly sat in the drawer for 25 years, but I never stopped thinking about it. It was maybe not constantly, but frequently on my mind. And about, I don't know, six years ago, it was in October, maybe six years ago, I decided to finish it. And a couple of things happened to cause me to want to finish it. One, of course, was just this nagging feeling that it was time to get it done. After all those years, I was tired of thinking about it. I wanted Tony Harrington and, and all of that out of my head. And I thought, I just got to get it done. So my, you know, I wanted my kids to be able to say, my dad wrote a novel, rather than always having to say, my dad always talked about writing a novel. And the second thing that happened was that I had the cool idea for the plot twist, what was going on behind the scenes that was causing this young man to be framed. And, and so, you know, when a writer has that moment where you think of something you've not seen before in books, it is a real goosebumps moment. It's a real source of joy and excitement to come up with something that's new. You know, I'm not, I can't pretend that it's unique because I haven't read every mystery book ever written, but I've never seen it anywhere else. And so when you, again, when you get that opportunity, you get excited. So I decided to finish the book and I vowed to write something on it every single day until it was done. So after all those years of the book sitting in the drawer, I told my wife, Jane, I'm going to finish the book. And she was almost like, what book? <laughs> you know? Um, so I got it out on my desk at home um, and I wrote something. And by the way, for those who are seeing this on video, in this office where I sit now, I got it out on the desk and I vowed to write something every day. And I still had a big job. Jane and I have six kids, not wow. all at once, thank goodness. Yeah, that's um, good. <laughs> but we, we, have, we have a very busy life, but I said, I'm going to do this. And even if I write one sentence, I'm going to write something every day. Well, you know what happens? You come home from a 10-hour workday and you sit down, you don't, you write the one sentence and then you write the next one and the next one and suddenly it's midnight or one in the morning and you've written three pages or six pages or whatever. And so four months later, the book was finished. This was in January. The only day I missed from my vow was Christmas Day. And uh, in January, it was done. This was in January of eight. No, January of 17. Then I had some very good fortune. A couple of published authors who I admire agreed to read it for me, gave me fantastic feedback. I did a second version, then a third version. And when I thought it was good enough to do something with, it really coincided with the fact that I retired from my business executive job in May of 18, and I had this finished book kind of ready to go, and I looked around. You know, you go from busy executive to retiree with kids grown and gone, and 
I started asking myself, well, maybe I should do something with the book. You know, I'd never really intended to publish it. I really thought I'd go to the local print shop, make six copies so my kids could have them, and that would be the end of it. But as I said, now I'm retired. Um, the book is done. Might as well try to do something with it. So I went looking for a publisher, and I was very fortunate. Uh, in Iowa, there's a publisher called Book Press Publishing, and they were very active, successful in the nonfiction world. Um, they do science books and business books and um, astronaut books. They've done a couple of different things for astronauts. And um, and right at the time when I had a finished novel, they had decided to get into fiction, and they were looking for an Iowa author with something new in fiction. And the timing just worked out great. They read it, had, I think, I don't know, three or four different people at Book Press read it, really liked it. We sat down and negotiated a deal to publish the first book. So if you don't mind me holding it up, no, uh, Burying the Lead. Not at all. <laughs> so it's called Burying the Lead, and lead is spelled L-E-D-E. -E. That's a newspaper way of spelling the lead of a news story. And the expression, of course, means when the important facts of a story are hidden down below where they're not supposed to be. And I thought it was a cool title for a mystery novel when what's going on on the surface is this murder trial, but what's really happening, the important stuff, is all happening behind the scenes. Um, so the book came out, and I figured that'd be the end of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then it sold out its first printing and won two awards. And suddenly I thought, you know, maybe I can actually do this. So this is, as you said, the book came out, the official copyright date is January of 19. And um, I thought, well, maybe I can do this. The other thing that was a huge surprise to me, and it has to do with this whole theme of your podcast, Joel, of, of sort of positive energy and inspiration what shocked me was Tony Harrington and all these fictional characters I'd created did not go away when the first book was done. When I do author talks, I often open my talk by saying I have an imaginary friend because that's what it feels like. After 30 plus years of these characters churning in my head, I really thought when the first book was done, they'd sort of just go away and they just didn't. Um, they're still very much alive, ready for their next adventure, if you will. And so I decided to write a second novel, and I took on the topic of human trafficking. I thought Tony Harrington, this protagonist, needed a big topic. If you know any, if you read the first book, you'll see it involves a sinister plot, some powerful people. And I didn't think I could follow that with what they call a cozy mystery. So I went looking for a big topic, something substantial that Tony could get wrapped up in. And I chose a topic of human trafficking because it happened to be in the news at that time. It's, it's a real serious problem. And, of course, it's rife with opportunities for an author. You have um, social issues, legal issues, emotional issues, all kinds of things wrapped up in human trafficking. And... Um, 
So I did the research for a couple of months. And again, fortunate to have wonderful help from people who know that world. Uh, the downside, of course, was it's such an ugly world. Everything yeah, that's, I learned. That's a dark, <laughs> that's a dark topic. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a I very live on, dark place. Yeah. I live on uh, a, uh, the I-5 corridor, which has a huge problem with that. Um, yeah. And it's, and, yeah. What I tell people, again, when I do author talks and get asked about it, I tell them it's, for most people, it's not what you think it is. It's, it's your neighbor's kids. It's, it's in your high schools and colleges. And, um, and I just learned so much, but I always caution people. If you're going to read, it's called cry from an unknown grave. That's a Henry Wadsworth Longfellow quote, uh, where he calls slavery, a cry from the unknown grave. And if you know anything about human trafficking, it's slavery, plain and simple. Yeah. So again, yeah. I thought it was a great title for, but I always caution people. There's some pretty ugly things in this book because I just couldn't write about it without being honest about how dark that world is. So book two came out and um, in early March or late February of 29, no, of uh, 2020 and COVID hit. <laughs> And suddenly, I mean, overnight, as we all know, we're in lockdown and we can't do anything. So I wrote three more novels. So that's my long-winded way of getting back to your original point that as a retiree, I have churned out five published novels. Number six is now at the editors and I've started number seven. So the bio on my website's a little bit dated. Um but it's been great fun. The third book's a little lighter. I knew I couldn't, I, I shouldn't say I couldn't. I didn't want my readers to think all the Tony Harrington books were going to be as brutal as the second one. So in the third one, he accompanies his mother back to Italy to a family funeral and gets on the trail of a bad guy there. Um, all of book three takes place in Italy and New York City, which was great fun to write. In book four, called Performing Murder, um, Hollywood comes to Iowa to film on location, and one of the actresses is found murdered. And the latest book just came out. is called The Sophocles Rule. Um, the title comes from the Greek teacher and philosopher Socrates, who said, don't keep secrets. Um, and it's all about this young newspaper reporter gets on the trail of a secret that's been held for 60 years and as he begins to solve this 60 year old crime he sparks two new murders and the disappearance of a teenage boy so the books have won some awards they've sold in every state in the u.s and in seven foreign countries and i'm having the time of my life as a supposedly retired person that is fantastic that i mean that it happens sometimes to when people retire, especially someone with a uh, a job that keeps you as busy as yours must have, and um, but you were there are so many layers of that that uh, were really awesome circumstances. I mean, it's great that it's published by a local publishing company, and and there were people there that could, you know, get it read by the by those people. That's really fantastic, and then 
even if you have the time, it doesn't mean people will take the time. So it's great that you took the time um, to do that. I know that's got to take a lot of discipline to say you're going to sit down and write every day. Um, I mean, the great thing about well, that—the great thing about that—is if you miss a day, you're still you're going to be back the next day. So, yeah, I and I always push back a little bit on, and somebody tries to compliment me too much because I love to write. This does not work for me. This is like somebody who loves to hunt. Going hunting, you know, isn't work for them. Somebody who loves to bowl, going bowling isn't work for them. And that's how I feel about writing. It's just a joy-filled activity for me, and I enjoy it immensely. Now, there are certainly aspects. I hate editing as much as I love writing. So there's certainly steps of the process that I dread. But the actual act of sitting down at the keyboard and churning out a book, um, I just love it. And I've been fortunate to not run out of ideas and have you know, be able to come up with plot twists and turns that that people find entertaining, relationships that people enjoy. And if you don't mind me saying so, people like Tony Harrington. I, I purposely made him a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, you know, in in thriller fiction, there are two very common types there's the superhero, you know, James Bond, Jason Bourne, Jack Reacher, uh, Mitch Rapp, you know, um, all these people who are smarter, faster, better, stronger than their opponents. And when they arrive on the scene, you know, they're going to win. Um, and then there's the other end of the spectrum where the main character is alcoholic, um, twice divorced, his kids don't speak to him, his boss hates him. Uh, he's completely down and out, and, and you read the book with him constantly on the edge of total collapse or failure. And I didn't want to write, I didn't think I could write either of those extremes as well as others have done it. And so I decided early on, Tony Harrington would just be sort of an average, nice Midwestern guy and let really um, challenging and uh, horrible things happen around him and explore what it's like for a sort of ordinary Iowa naive, you know, guy to encounter these different kinds of evil and, um, and circumstances. Uh, so that, that's been a lot of fun and, and to watch him uh, evolve through the books, mm-hmm. you know, he's, <laughs> he's very naive uh, but he's also kind of a liberal, I'd rather die than hurt someone else type person. But as he goes through these six books with different experiences with terrible, evil people, he becomes a much different person. He does things in book six you'd never, he would never have dreamed of doing in the, in the first book. Uh, so that's been fun, too, to sort of see him grow and change. And that sounds like a, a great, that, that really does sound different than most of these types of novels. I, don't, I can see what you're talking about. It would be very refreshing to see that character because there's, there's not, many, not many of those. Um, yeah, it is always one or the other. Either they have a million problems, but they can do everything. Even the ones who are, you know, down in the dumps 
always come through when there's a situation they need to. Almost always. Um, yeah, I, but yeah, it's. I sometimes when I'm doing talks, I sometimes get asked, you know, is well, you were a newspaper reporter. Is Tony Harrington you? And my first answer, you know, is kind of flippant, where I say, well, let's see, he's young, slender, good-looking, smart, brave. So sure, that's me. That's you, hundred um, percent. But the honest answer, the real answer is. It's not me. It's who I wish I was. You know, I've written this character that I'd love to be him, but I know that I'm not. Uh, I'm not that brave. I'm not, um, I'm certainly not a risk taker like he is. Um, I'd like to think I'm not quite as naive as he is. Um, I keep mentioning the naive because let me give you a very quick example of that. I mentioned that, that book three. Uh, which, by the way, is called The Third Side of Murder, which is a mafia quote. Uh, one of the mafia bosses said, there's three sides to every story, your side, my side, and the truth. And that's sort of the point of the book. There's what Tony says happened, there's what the bad guy says happened, and then there's what really happened. Uh, I'm proud to say one of the national reviewers said, this is a plot twist you won't see coming. I, I thought that was kind of a treat. But in Anyway, my point is that in terms of his naive nature, um, he, he, I'm not giving too much away here, but this guy he starts to get on the trail of in Italy, uh, he realizes is a member of the Camorra, which is the Italian mafia. And as a naive Iowa guy, what does he do when he realizes this bad guy is mafia? He goes to the mafia boss to ask for help. And, of course, the mafia guy throws him out on his ear and threatens to, you know, feed him to his bulldogs if he bothers him again. But that that's an example of how Tony Harrington's personality will cause him to do these things that you kind of say, wait a minute, <laughs> you know. Um, so, anyway, it's been fun. So, have you ever thought about... Um maybe a TV series or movie based on that you know, character? Has, has anyone ever approached you? Because I know when, when books do any kind of success, um, they often get approached yeah, by Hollywood, and it, it will um, lead me into something else. <laughs> people who read the books ask me about that all the time. In fact, on the back of Burying the Lead, one of the, blur one of the cover blurbs from uh, Anthony Postian, who's an award-winning author himself, he said, you know, uh, I could visually see the movie playing out in my mind. Um, I get that pointed out to me a lot. Oh, these should be movies. These should be movies. But if you know anything about movie making, uh, it's a hundred times harder to get content made into movies than it is to make a book. Uh, publishing a book isn't easy, but getting a movie made maybe a thousand times harder um, I've had a couple of nibbles, and you never know. But mm -hmm. I, I'm certainly not putting any eggs in that that basket. I'm tickled that people read them and enjoy them, and and I I hear from readers who love them, and that's good enough for me, you know. <laughs> but if Hollywood calls and offers me a big check, I won't turn it down. Uh, but I'm not holding my breath either. 
Right. So no one's approached you yet. Well, some some nibbles. Uh, and that <laughs> that question came up because there's a part on your on your website here uh, about all the different celebrities that you've met and the um, you have a list and you you kind of invite people to send you their list with your email uh, to your email and so I had two questions one is well I'll start here I'll start here um, what is the story behind the who shirt I was uh, Oh, yeah. I, was a, I was a huge fan of The Who, and so oh, that, well. that looks like your best treasure to me. You know, I grew up learning to play drums from Keith Moon and 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 his generation, basically. Yeah. So that, also, that's one. And then I'm a, yeah. <laughs> well, let, well, let's deal with that quick. Um, okay. I'm also a huge Who fan, and if you look over my shoulder, that is the Who T-shirt in a frame on the wall behind my head. Oh yeah, there it is. Um. So in 1975, when I was in college, I hate admitting to people how old I really am, but when I was in college, The Who played in Des Moines, Iowa at a, at a big venue called Veterans Auditorium. Uh, turned out, by the way, to be the biggest crowd that was ever assembled in vets. But in any case, a friend of mine and I cut college classes that day, and we went down to the auditorium at 9 o'clock in the morning, and we walked in the loading dock entrance where the semi-trucks were backed up, and we asked for whoever was in charge, and we told them, um, uh, we're big fans, we've got tickets, we're not trying to get in for free, uh, we just want to be a part of it, and we'll work for free if you'll put us to work. And they said, you bet, you, Roger, do this, you, Joe, do that. And I ended up spending the day on a team that converted the athletic locker room into a five-star hotel suite. We laid carpet on the floor. We put up fabric on the walls. We brought in couches and chairs. We brought in banquet tables covered with food. Anyway, that's what they do for stars. Uh, did you so divide was, the M&Ms? <laughs> no, <laughs> they didn't have anything like that. I've heard that story, but that wasn't the who. No, in it any wasn't. Case, I've, I've always I spent, heard that story. Yeah, I've, I spent the day um, working on behalf of the promoters, getting the auditorium ready for the band. And when the band arrived, of course, we they told us, okay, time to get out of the locker room, now hotel suite. And they ushered us out of there. The band arrived through a garage door in a limousine, and they got out of the limo and went into the room we'd prepped. And they were only in there, I don't know, 15 minutes or something, and it was time for the concert to start. They came out of the locker room and walked up on the walked up the stairs to the stage. And as... Um, John Entwistle was the last one up the stairs. As he went up, I just followed him up. And I stood on the stage at Vets Auditorium and watched that concert. Um, and it was, for a big Who fan, of course, the th absolute thrill of a lifetime. Uh, it was just extraordinary. And they were in their prime at that time. They were clean and sober. Tommy was a huge hit. Quadrophenia had just come out. Um, 
So then when the show was over, they went back in the locker room to clean up. And I grabbed one of the shirts from the, you know, merchandise sellers, grabbed a magic marker. And as they came back out of the locker room, I cornered each one and asked for them to sign it. So it's hard to see, of course, but behind that glass in the frame, that shirt is signed by all four original members of The Who for me. In the corner, you can see my promoter's pass, which is how I stayed backstage. They gave me one during the course of the day. And in this other corner, you can barely see down in the lower corner is my actual ticket to the concert still sealed in the envelope. Because I was backstage, never used the ticket, it's never been out of the envelope. So I'm very proud of that little collection of memorabilia, and I've been offered a great deal of money for it, um, but so far have clung to it. So that's oh, yeah, the that's Who good. story. That's a good story. That's a great, you don't want to sell that stuff. Not a chance. No. I, I saw the Who in the 80s uh, after Keith Moon had passed, and they had put out an album now, I cannot remember the drummer, which is unfortunate. He was still a great drummer, but he wasn't Keith Moon. And when I saw them in San Diego at the stadium, wherever I was sitting, I couldn't quite see the drummer. So it ended up being uh, a really good concert. I, I had nothing against the drummer, but it was just interesting that I really couldn't see him. I could see the other three. And my I was so amazed at how far that microphone goes when he does the microphone twirl. Mm how far that mic goes i had yeah. no, i'd only seen it on video you know at the time i had just had no concept that he was throwing yeah. that thing that far and out there it's incredible how, how high um pete townsend can leap you know it there, there's a lot of things about their show that were just extraordinary you may have seen um they had somebody else for a short time so it depends on the timing uh but then of course zach starkey took over drumming for the who that's that's ringo's son and zach oh it was no it was well before that it was they put out an album i really it was a i keep wanting to say simon phillips or it wasn't simon phillips i think he's played some gigs with them too um i'm I'm just i'm blanking on on the drummer yeah so then there was something else you wanted to ask me besides the who question. Oh, the other thing was the, your your list. It's quite an impressive list. Hugh Jackman, Bill Murray, Ron Howard, um, Jonathan Frakes, LeVar Burton. And as I go down, I see that the Kevin Pollack is on there, and he actually does a lot of the – he like does impressions of a lot of the people that are on the list. But I, sure. I, I guess uh, I had a couple questions there, and one of them was – was this over like 40 years that you met all these people? Was it in yeah. all different circumstances? Yeah. Yeah. Part okay. of, yeah. Part of the length of that list is just the fact that I'm old. Um, you know, I've lived seven decades and you meet a lot of people. Uh, part of it is my personality. I'm, I'm just not shy. I enjoy meeting people and, um, I try to be respectful if somebody's, uh, you know, if I encounter some celebrity and they're, they're not interested in visiting, I leave them alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find oftentimes that they're perfectly friendly and happy to chat. Uh, and of course, a part of the length of that list is the fact I was a newspaper reporter. And even though crime and criminal justice was my primary beat, 
we did lots of different kinds of reporting. And so some of the names on that list, like Count Basie and Ron Howard, were people I interviewed as a newspaper reporter. Um, I still have my Ron Howard interview on tape. It's an hour and 40 minutes, I think. Um, we had uh, just a fantastic conversation. And that was, he had directed a couple of movies at that point. He wasn't the big deal movie director that he is today, but he'd gotten into directing and had had some success. So I was able to talk to him about all of his television days and growing up and some of the famous people he knew, um, but then also had an opportunity to ask about his directing. And um, so, yeah, we, I, I've been very, very fortunate. Um, uh, one of the names on the list is Mary Lou Henner. It's a, it's a great example of what I'm talking about because I saw her on Broadway. And after the show, I was standing outside the Schubert Theater and she came out the stage door and I happened to have seen a matinee. And so there just weren't fans hanging around like you see many times after a Broadway show at night. Um, after the matinee, the crowd had kind of dispersed. And when she came out, there were two or three of us standing there. And she walked up to us and struck up a conversation. And we had a lovely chat with Mary Lou Henner, who, if for your younger listeners, have probably forgotten who that is. But she was star on Taxi, and she was a big deal in situation comedy television. Um, and obviously on Broadway. So, yeah, lots of different names, um, different circumstances over a long period of time. And she most likely remembers your name and exactly where she met you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not <laughs> foolish enough to go there. No, it's true. It's um, true. She has some type of, uh, it's not exactly a photographic memory, but she remembers everything. Is that right? Yeah, well, I've I'm seen. I've sure seen her. If you went to her website, so she you would, won't find my name. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but if she met you, she could probably tell you where you met and when. It it's uh, it's just a, something that some people have. It's a very rare. Uh, uh, I, I want to say condition. It's not a condition. It. It's a very rare thing that some people have that she has. Uh, I was racking my brain to see, after seeing this list, about, and I could only think of a couple. Uh, I lived in L.A. for a little while, so lots of celebrities everywhere. I could only think of a couple of celebrities, and then I had a conversation with my wife, and she's like, well, what about this guy? Well, what about what him? Well, what about him? So there's actually quite a few, but because I don't necessarily think of them as celebrities, I, it just didn't. It yeah. didn't stick in my mind that way. Yeah, it I was think interesting. Most, most people have had more encounters than they think about, which is one reason yeah. why I invited yeah. people to conjure up their own list and send it to me. It's just kind of a fun exercise to go back and say, well, who have I met? Um, I didn't allow, I say allow, my rules for the list are you can't just list people you've seen perform. You have to... Um, these have to be people you've actually talked to. So there's some names that aren't on there. But um, a great story I love to tell is, you know, where I live is five hours from Chicago. And so I'm a frequent uh, uh, patron of Second City in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I love mm -hmm. good comedy. And 
So I took my sons to Second City one time, and they're looking at all these pictures on the walls of, you know, John Candy and Alan Alda and all these famous people and um, uh, the Belushis and, you know, everybody. And I said to them, you know, I've been here enough that I've seen a lot of famous people as well. And you know how kids are. They look at their dad and they say kind of, you know, oh, yeah, who? (laughs) (laughs) So I said, well, I saw Tina Fey twice and Rachel Dratch. um, And um, I, I named one or two others that I can't remember now. But it got me wondering, who have I seen? And I went back and dug through my playbills whenever I see a live show i there's a drawer i throw playbills in and it's a fat drawer full of playbills after all these years but i went back and dug through it and i found a playbill from second city in chicago from 1996 i think uh it's a six-person cast if you've never been there um in a tiny little theater and two of the cast members were Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell. Oh, and I'd geez. forgotten that that's who I saw. As soon as I saw the playbill and read, you know, reminded myself of the sort of the loose theme that they used to tie together the comedy, I remembered the show, but I'd forgotten that's who it was. And of course, Colbert looked very different in those days. But, but yeah, I've been fortunate to encounter a lot of cool people. You know, the Bill Murray conversation was maybe the most extraordinary of all uh he's an incredible (laughs) i don't even have the right words for it but i um i had quite the interesting conversation with him at a chicago restaurant one night um so yeah a lot of extraordinary experiences yeah i actually i'm as we're talking, I realize because you mentioned Saturday Night Live, I worked with Sherry O'Terry um, oh, yeah. because she worked at A and M Records at the same time that I did. So we weren't we. I just saw her in passing, and I knew she was doing comedy. And then it was actually after I think after I'd left there that she showed up on Saturday Night Live. I, I completely forgot about that. Um, so how did you end up in a restaurant with Bill Murray? Well, um, I was there with a large group of of people from a con we were at a conference in chicago and like you do when you have you know 14 people around a table with wine and dessert and all that and it got quite late and we were almost the only ones left in the restaurant when bill murray came in with four other people five of them and of course they took a table in the far corner of the restaurant away from us and the table murmured about it, you know, chattered away. And um, and as we got up to leave, people kind of asked each other, should we try to meet him? And the decision was made, no, leave him alone. You know, I'm sure he gets tired of being bothered. And so basically we all decided we were just going to leave, except one young woman. Um, I don't. I didn't know her, don't know her name, uh, because it was strangers from all over the country who'd gathered to have dinner together. Um, but she basically said, well, well, I'm going to meet him. So everybody else left the restaurant. She headed for Bill Murray's table. And I kind of hung by the front door 
Now you can just you know you can choose to believe that I'm chivalrous and didn't want this young woman to have to walk back to her hotel in the dark by herself, or you can choose to believe I'm the kind of person who kind of wanted to see how it went with Bill, <laughs> uh, whether I could get in on that. Well, anyway, it didn't go well. Um, I could see immediately there was some kind of confrontation. He physically pushed her away, and she went storming past me and kind of shoved the door open and walked out of the restaurant in a huff. And so I just turned toward Bill's table and held up my hand like you do and just mouthed the words, sorry about that, um, because I felt bad that he'd been interrupted. and, And he shook his head vigorously and said, you know, come. And I look around like, you know, is he talking to me? And I'm the only one there. And so um, I walk over to his table, and he was unhappy. He was angry and wanted to know if who that woman was. I had to tell him I didn't know. And he said, well, does she work in healthcare? And I said, well, it was a table full of healthcare people, so probably. And he said, well, that's not her destiny. You know, those people who pick up cans out of the ditch to survive, that's where she's headed. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, And he said, "Um, I'm not going to relate this whole conversation to you, I promise, but I am proud of this one little factoid. He said to me, I get tired of women who just because they're beautiful think they can have whatever they want. And he said, you know, she wasn't the most beautiful woman in the world. And I said, Bill, she wasn't even the most beautiful woman at our table. <laughs> and, and he laughed out loud. And I was so <laughs> proud of the fact that I made Bill Murray laugh. Um, but then he invited me to sit down and we had a conversation about health care, the Affordable Care Act. We talked about Second City. It turns out the people he was there having dinner with were second city people. And, um, and it was just extraordinary. Um, his range of interests and range of emotions that I witnessed from angry to silly, to, to laughing, to serious. And, uh, it was really, a. I left the restaurant shaking. I was so excited to have had that experience. So, and you're actually a bit of a celebrity yourself. You it looks like you're doing book book signings and book tours and <laughs> book talks. Well, I'm far short of celebrity status, but I am definitely getting invited out to um, talk to libraries, book clubs, service clubs, um, uh, at books, do book signings at bookstores. Um, I love it. I love talking about books. Um, Obviously, I love talking about my books, but I love talking about fiction in general. Um, I try to make it fun and interesting. Uh, People like the fact that I was a journalist myself, so I can mix in some true crime stories uh, with the fiction that I've written. And and we have a lot of fun doing it. And uh, anybody listening who'd like to have an author speak to your book club, um, I'd love to do it, um, or your service club or whatever organization. Uh, and it's pretty easy to find me. It's just uh, joe at com. So, 
And we'll have that on the show notes, show notes as well, so it'll be very easy to find you. Um, oh, there's um, some audience questions, meaning my wife. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I guess you you have some stuff about artificial intelligence and the future of that on your website. You have an interest in AI. Um. If I do, I've forgotten. You've forgotten um, about it. Oh, okay. I, but, I wasn't sure where she got this question, but I'll ask anyway, because you're an author and there's, <laughs> there's this huge, yeah. huge stream of, of information now about the um, AI writing. Yeah. And it's, what do you it's think It's a giant issue. I, yeah. I'm a member yeah. of the Authors Guild, mm -hmm. and they just had their annual meeting yesterday, and so I was connected by Zoom. Um, and they talked about that, um, the opportunity of some of the new AI tools as well as the threat. Um, I, I worry a lot about technology, the combination of AI and robotics and where it's taking us. And, you know, we all know, well, maybe I should stick with the writer's world. In the writer's world already, I mean, practically overnight, we're now seeing content created by computers, uh, much of it nearly indistinguishable from human-created content. And so obviously for an author, this is a concern. Um, already the competition is just unbelievable. Last year in America, four million books were published. And you know, there's only 350 million Americans <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, wow. 4 million books. Um, and so it's, you know, when I'm writing murder mystery, mine are in hardcover. I mean, you can get them on Kindle for 6 to $8. But if you want to buy my hardcover book, you know, you're spending 25 to $28, something like that. And many of those Four million books are for sale on Amazon for 99 cents. That's the competition we're already up against. And then you take the potential of AI, you know, turning out a thousand books a day and, you know, in the mystery genre or whatever it might be capable of. Uh, it's, it is a bit disconcerting. Um, I try not to fret about it too much because competition's always been a part of the equation and our challenge has always been as writers if we want to sell books we have to be more interesting more compelling more um, creative than the next person um, but i do have to admit i never imagined in my younger life that i would be competing against a computer for people's attention I guess none of us ever did. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah the the whole uh, hmm. there's a long there's a long conversation to be had there because it's not just writers. It's it's everyone. Uh, yeah, actors never thought they would be competing against people that um, are big on YouTube for a job. You know, things like this. Mm, um, exactly. Yeah, it's pretty nuts. Uh, and you testified. You testified before the U.S. Senate Committee um, on disaster preparedness. I actually had a gentleman on the podcast who was 
he did a documentary about building better homes in areas that are disaster prone. Uh, that you know, it, he basically was trying to get people to build better houses and buildings because they're going to fall down and they don't have to. So, um, yeah, what was, what, how was that? Yeah. So, um, I was, I was working at Mercy Medical Center in Des Moines and Senator Tom Harkin, who was a longtime, uh, Senator from Iowa was holding a hearing on disaster preparedness. And this was after the anthrax scares and there was a lot of talk about bioterrorism. There was a lot of talk about other kinds of terrorism, post 9-11, et cetera. And so they were having this hearing, and the senator, um, as is common, um, turned to his home state to invite somebody to come to Washington to talk about the local perspective on this. And... Um, Senator Harkin always said that he had a warm spot in his heart for Mercy because the Mercy sisters had taken care of his parents uh, when they were sick. And, and, and so Tom always felt particularly, anyway, he, he called us and my CEO didn't either feel like he could get away or didn't particularly care to do it. And our chief nurse, said, no, that's your job, Joe. I, I did most of the lobbying for Mercy at, at that time. And so, long story short, <clears throat> they turned to me and said, you go do it. So this was on a Tuesday, and I'm supposed to testify on Thursday morning. Oh, geez. So I flew to Washington, and I basically had one night, one afternoon and night to prepare. And I went in, and it turns out to be a pretty humorous story because the real when the hearing opened the room was packed with every news media organization you can imagine tv cameras and uh, journalists from all over because of this anthrax scare and the topic was bioterrorism and on the panel was the chief of the cdc the chief of the nih uh, and they had a Russian defector who had actually helped Russia develop some of their bioterrorism weapons and me. <laughs> and so these bigwigs all testify, you know, the Russian guy testifies and some of the media wanders off and the, and the CDC guy finishes and some more leave. And, you know, anyway, long story short, by the time I spoke, the room was practically empty. <laughs> And the questions to me were about, well, what about local hospitals' ability to deal with with terrorism if it happens in your community? And I had come with some prepared remarks about that and basically used it as a plea to the to the senator to do a better job of supporting local hospitals through Medicare payments, et cetera, so we could be better prepared. Um, but believe me, my part in all this turned out to be very, very minor compared to the big players at the table. Compared to them. And I don't, <clears throat> I can't think of anything we would need to be prepared for. I don't, can't think of any kind of um, outbreak that could possibly happen worldwide. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. 
<laughs> well, and it's it's sad that when the pandemic hit, you know, healthcare just was devastated. Uh, elective surgeries were canceled um, either by the patients, the doctors, or the government saying, you know, all electives are canceled to make room for COVID patients. Um, and medical patients like COVID patients don't pay hospitals very well. And so they filled their beds up with patients they lose money on. And uh, they've really never recovered from that. I'm not the expert. I've been gone from healthcare now for over five years. And um, so I'm really out of touch with all that. But based on what I hear from my friends, it's a pretty rough go still. Yeah, that's what we're seeing here. It, um, a few, I know some people that work at different healthcare facilities and they are still way understaffed compared to, you know, pre-COVID levels. And I can tell as a consumer, when it takes three or four months to get a, a simple appointment that, you know, the, the healthcare facilities are still really struggling. And a lot of it is not, a lot of it is that so many people left during COVID because they couldn't stay for different reasons. You know, they they had to leave the the field, which is really unfortunate. And we don't, <laughs> uh, I don't want to go too far into this, but we don't have numbers at all of the casualties, the, what do they call them? The secondary casualties, um, you know, people that didn't get surgeries or didn't get health care for, a year or more. Yeah. You know, we don't really know what what effect that had, which is sad. It's sad. Oh, so many of the questions I had you already answered because <laughs> which was great. Which I'm long-winded, great. yeah. Well, it, it but it's that's <laughs> I love it. I like I like being a lazy podcaster. I like it when I can <laughs> <laughs> just hear the other person talk. So, other than Bill Murray, was there like a favorite celebrity that you met or that you remember? Or I won't well, say least favorite. I, I have, I'll tell you, I met, I didn't meet. I know of a story with uh, Jonathan Frakes. He is well known in the industry as being an extremely great person to work for and great person to work around. He mainly directs now. But I was in a very small, very small community theater thing called Trek Theater, where they do Star Trek episodes as plays, mostly from the original or next generation. Um, And the person who started that was having a really hard time. And I don't know who, I don't know how it happened, but someone got a hold of Jonathan Frakes and told him. And so he sent her a video to say, I hear you're having a hard time. Uh, I hope you feel better soon. Just wanted to say hello. And I, I was just stunned. I was pretty stunned that he, he was able to take the time to do that. It was great. It's great. Yeah, he's, he spoke here uh, in West Des Moines. We have a, a community college in central Iowa, um, Des Moines Area Community College, which is enormous. They have thousands and thousands of students, and um, they have multiple campuses and one of those campuses every year hosts what's called CI Live. It's it's about all about innovation. That's the I in CI Live. And they bring in celebrities from film and television. They bring in scientists and explorers, astronauts. I've 
part of the, again, one of the reasons my list is so long, I've met uh, several of those people through uh, annual CI Live events. Um, Jonathan Frake spoke at CI Live, and it's the cool thing about it, it's on video, and so the actual room the person's speaking in, there might be a couple hundred people, um, but it goes out in a broadcast sense to a much bigger audience. Well, if you're in the room, you really have a chance to meet the person. Um, and so I I had uh, an exchange. When Frakes was on the stage, he and I had an exchange. I was in one of the front rows of the audience, and we, we had a little laugh between us um, as he was speaking. And then later at the VIP reception, I had a chance to talk to him briefly. But um, But you're right, just a super nice guy and that was really fun but i want to answer your question the my favorite person that i've met so far um is not a name that you'll probably know her name's danielle feinberg and she spoke at ci live um she was the most entertaining speaker i've ever seen live she is the director of photography for pixar and she came with with slides and videos um, and demonstrated to the audience how they make movies like Toy Story and others. Monsters, Inc. was one she worked on. Um, and it was absolutely fascinating. She was funny and wonderful and engaging. And, and at the VIP reception afterwards, I told her, honestly, that was the best live talk I've ever seen, and I meant it. So to her credit, she kind of poo-pooed that and started asking about me. And I said, well, I was a executive for a long time, but now I write mystery novels. And she was all over that, wanted to know more about it. She thought it was fascinating, you know. And we ended up talking for quite a while about me, which is seems ridiculous compared to what she's accomplished. Um, but then two weeks later, I get an email from her saying, I read your first book. I loved it. I just thought you'd like to know. And I said to her, well, I'm so glad to hear from you because <laughs> my second book is done. Would you like to read it and write a blurb for the cover? And so she did. So on the back of Cry From an Unknown Grave, um, it says, this latest installment of Tony Harrington's adventures is a gripping page-turner full of excitement, heart-wrenching twists, and rich justice. It's impossible to put down. Daniel Feinberg, um, Pixar Studios. Um, she's now written a blurb on the back of my fifth novel as well, um, so she's been very generous with her time. Uh, but I can tell you honestly, it's been an absolute delight for me to get acquainted with her and be able to, you know, more than just a chat to make the list, I consider her, if not a friend, at least a genuine friendly acquaintance. So that's awesome. That's really nice. Cause I can imagine she, does she still work at Pixar? She's yeah. still direct. Yeah. yeah. So I know that fact, I know how hard a, those, that, that job is at that. That's yeah, a huge job. So yes. that's and really she nice. Has, of her. She has two little kids. Um, she and her wife uh, adopted a couple of little kids. 
Um, but she just posted online um, a picture of her in a tux at at the Academy Awards that were just held. Um, one of the movies she worked on was was nominated. I don't think they won, but she was at the Academy Awards. So it was, it's definitely been fun to follow her career and see some of these things that she does that I'll never come close to. Yeah, that would be an interesting company to work for. That they put out some great stuff, fantastic stuff. Uh, well, it's been. Uh, we should probably wrap it up. We've been talking a little while. I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, you know, exhaust you on the Zoom call. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can tell I love uh, it. And in uh, you know, in closing, I, I, I if you want to, I'd kind of like to bring this back again to this theme that you often talk about around positive energy and motivation. And here's a little bit of advice. I get asked all the time when I do author talks, I can't almost always someone comes up to me afterwards to say, I want to write a book. I have an idea for a book. I'm, I've started a book. I can't seem, you know, and here's my little tidbit for the day that you can take home with you. You don't have to finish to start. Um, uh, don't think of it. If you're having trouble writing a book, don't think of it as writing a book. Think of it as writing that sentence or that paragraph or that page. You know, if you sit down at the keyboard with the intention to write a novel, uh, it's just so daunting and it's so hard to imagine that endpoint, And it's just hard to motivate yourself to get started. But if you sit down at the keyboard with the intention to write a paragraph, you can do that. And when it's done, you can feel good. I sat down to write a paragraph. I did it. Now I can write the next paragraph. Or if you sit down with the intent to write a page, you can do that. And so that's my constant advice to people. You don't have to finish to start. Just think of it as sitting down to write that first paragraph or that first page and go from there. Um, and you'll find out it's a lot more fun and a lot easier than you thought. That is great. That is great advice. I, uh, I've done that. I've, I've written a paragraph. I haven't gotten much further. <laughs> but well, I have you sat go. down and written that first paragraph. I think that's really good advice. Uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to leave on that. You've been listening to Were You Still Talking? This is Joel Albrecht, and I've been talking to Joseph or Joe LaValle, author extraordinaire, um, extremely prolific author with seven, I believe, seven novels to his name now, soon to be a celebrity. Thank you so much for listening. Please uh, help the show by letting other people know that it's here. Let people know that you've listened to this podcast. Maybe, maybe post it somewhere, you know, leave a comment, whatever you want to do. Appreciate you listening. It's been great having you on the show. It would be nice to have you back again. Um, maybe you'll come back when you sell your first uh, TV series or movie and uh, you're a huge celebrity and we can see what's going on. <laughs> Thank well, you very much. Anytime, Joel. I've enjoyed it immensely and I certainly appreciate the opportunity. It was my pleasure. My pleasure. And uh, so everybody, be good to each other. <laughs>